Welcome to Living Harmoniously, an ever-expanding revolution of women, embracing their bodies and their extraordinary natural rhythms to enhance all aspects of life. I'm so honoured to have on this episode of Living Hormoniously, a, a remarkable woman who's just doing so many incredible things in the world. Byron Bay, Citizen of the Year, Death Walker, which we're going to get into as well, because there'll be a lot of people who are unfamiliar with that expression. Amongst many other things, uh, uh, what would you say, the facilitator, creator of Vagina Conversations? Mm, I think the creator. Zenith Virago, firstly, welcome. Thanks. <laughs> but let's start with Byron Bay Citizen of the Year and let's get that out of the way. What does it mean for you to have an award like this to be recognised in this way in I guess a sort of semi-political sphere because this comes through the the council? Yeah I mean it was a surprise to me and even when we attended on the night it wasn't clear who would win it. There were five nominees and I watched the other four go up and received the runners-up, and it was very satisfying to think, wow, you know, it's me. (laughs) And someone nominated me. A lot of people wrote letters of support about my work, one of which was about the vaginas. Uh, Others were to do with death and other things. But the most beautiful thing is that people come up and say congratulations and I say oh thank you you know it's lovely but then the majority of them say that's so well deserved and there's something in the tone and something in the conveying of their respect and delight it means for me that the work that I've spent most of my time doing which has really been community work uh, has has worked. It's made cultural change. It's made everybody aware that you can do death well and that you can reclaim some of those rights, legal rights, social rights, rights of passage, and create something that's more meaningful and appropriate and ultimately leads to a healthier bereavement. I do want to get deeply into this death work that you do, Zenith. But before we get back there, I just want to ask you, Was there a certain level of almost amusement for you in receiving this award from the council, in the council chambers, for a life's body of work work that's essentially been centred around anarchy and breaking apart the systems that don't work? I have a few lines that I've said all my life, but one of them is, if you live long enough, anything is possible. And I'm saying that generally to do with death because I often see things come round or life come round if people live long enough. But if someone dies, then that repair or that growth may not be possible. And so I feel for all the young people who die who never get to grow into the fullness of who they could become. And so I feel very fortunate to have lived a long time. I'm, you know, I'm 64 now. I've lived through different stages. I'm a grandmother. I've loved them all. And I love being old. I love being an elder. I don't spend most of my time trying to pretend that I'm not old, uh, which I feel is a big problem for lots of people, especially women. Who, But really, it, it makes you resistant to death or... It makes you actually resistant to life because you're not appreciating that there's a season for everything. And, you know, as you get older, 
the, your capacity and desire change. So they're sort of in a loop in the marriage together where because your capacity lessens, your desire lessens for certain things. So, for example, to be busy and to be in your prime. So I'm still working. I'm still in demand. My reputation is only growing. But my capacity to be multitask, like you probably are, because at your age you're in the prime, man, you know, being a parent, being a businesswoman, being a radio person, you know, and a million other things. But after, you know, I don't know, maybe around 60, I just thought, I don't want to be that busy anymore. I've spent my whole life being busy. It's been so much fun. But now I want to have a different sort of quality of being. Do you find then that it's distilling down for you really the things that you just want to be doing? That's become a lot more clear? Uh, no, because I've always done that. I've been very fortunate, to, but I could do a million things in one day. And I have a friend and he often, you know, if he does more than five things in a day, he says, oh my God, I'm doing a Zenith Virago because, you know, I could cram and cram and cram. And still be, because fortunately my personality, people feed me, busyness feeds me. It's really about quality. It's like instead of being a wine or a champagne, I'm a liqueur now. That's sort of what I feel. <laughs> One of the things that I wanted to ask you, which you've just started to touch on, is your relationship with ageing. And I imagine that you do have a very different relationship with ageing because of spending so much time in this process and transition into death. When you first began this journey into being with people through this time, this death walking role, what really major things about sort of core values or core truths did you hold that started to dissolve quite quickly in seeing and spending so much time in the reality of death? I didn't really have a fixed position, so I never grew up with any religion. Uh, I have been pretty f lucky to, to have lived a reasonably free life and I've always loved being a girl. I realised very early that uh, the, how the world worked on gender and I made a very clear decision at about seven that I was never going to lose because I was a girl. I didn't need to win but I was never going to lose and I've lived my whole life with that as my core position. So, and that's been very helpful for me. But around death, I didn't have much experience of death. And then a dear friend died. But what I did have was uh, a legal background. And I had a sense of adventure. And I probably have an innate courage to face things that are new and exciting. Whereas some people are intimidated by that. But what, by working in law, what I knew was that people in positions of power are only people doing their job. And you can really mess with that once you understand that instead of being intimidated by it, by authority. And that's exactly the attitude I took into working with death and the, the, in, the funeral industry, religion, uh, the medical industry. And that was very useful for lots of for me and for lots of people, but really it was about creating a death style that matched people's lifestyles, so that people who had opted out of the mainstream, who then were dying 
or dead and wanted something that was meaningful and appropriate that wasn't religious but was still, let's say, sacred or holy. Religion can't own sacred and holy. Everything is sacred, mm. you know, and, and you can create holy. What does your role really look like as a death walker? It looks like a range of things. So really I would say I was a responder. People call me, so either the dying person or their family or the family of someone's died suddenly or even if they've died expectedly, but people don't like to ring and put anything in place before someone dies because they feel it's bad form or it's disrespectful to the person. But in fact, it is one of the greatest things you can do because then when that person does die, you've already created a relationship with the people that you're going to be working with who are going to provide those after-death services. And you can just be busy in the emotion of the loss and everything that arises from that because you've already put certain steps in place. I'm responding like that. I'm also doing ceremony. But I'm talking to lots and lots of people all the time, either on the phone or out and about. And I suppose the biggest thing I've done is make death very accessible and bring it out onto the street, out into the public, out at parties, out in street parades, because I'm very alive. That makes it not so scary. Getting back to what you were saying before, there's definitely something in this hidden component of death that is robbing each and every one of us of the full capacity of our life. Absolutely. And in seeing so much of that space, I mean, it's an incredibly unique position to be in, in terms of so many of the big questions that we have about life. I'm always curious about, even in with sudden death, how subconsciously aware the person might be that potentially something's coming. Oh, very good. So about maybe 20 years ago, I was there was a stream, there's always a stream of sudden death, but there were quite a few. And what happens for me in my position, also because I'm very chatty, I'm very accessible, and I'm also very standing up at the ceremony, you know, there's 400 people and then there's me, And so a lot of people come and tell me little snippets of a story that on their own are just a small piece of a story. But when you get a lot of, it's like pieces of a puzzle. Once you get a lot, you've actually got the whole picture and you can see the puzzle. And it became very clear to me, and I'm compelled to believe and have done for many years, that most people, even when they die in a sudden death and they are not complicit so it's not when they've killed themselves or it's not when they're driving the car or they're a passenger in the car so they're not pulled in that way at all it's very clear when you look back that you can see that about four to six weeks before that death occurred that person something changed in that person and they tidied up their loose ends things that they never did they they um, went to see people they said hey you know I just really want to tell you how much I love you how much you've meant to me in my life things like that was sort of beautiful but a little bit out of character for an everyday event unless you're someone who does that all the time because you're aware that you might die in any moment 
like me. So I'm always saying what I mean <laughs> all the time. But it was very clear. And, um, and often people would say, wow, they were so happy, you know. And I wonder if, I don't understand it, but I wonder if the spirit or the essence or consciousness or whatever people want to call it, when it knows it's about to leave the body and return to whatever it was before it was encased in that body, is, has, brings a joy, brings a sense of freedom. We all know what it's like when we're going on holiday. It's like, <gasps> like that. And so I'm sort of compelled to believe that people do know and they put things in place. And absolutely, when people kill themselves, often people will say, oh, but they were the happiest they've been for a long time. We thought they turned a corner. We thought it was okay. And you can only surmise, from my perspective, that once they made that decision, mm. something in them relaxed, that their suffering would be over, that they, they knew what they were doing, even though that causes so much suffering for the people who are left behind. But that's our job to manage that suffering, not to take on someone else's suffering, but to, to wish them well on their journey, to not wish it was different, uh, to not look at all the things you could have done but you didn't, but to accept circumstances just as they are and then put that energy into being present to that and what's necessary in the present moment and going on. For, that, for you as the person left behind to bring the very best of what you have to offer in that circumstance. There's something just so immense in, in what you're saying and being able to see this nuance threaded through 20 years of, of holding this space. And even as you were talking then, my, my bleed is due today. And so I'm, I'm welling up. I can feel the tears stinging my eyes. And if I was in this role, this would be the effect for me in, in holding space, that I would feel into this this much more at this component of my cycle. And have you been doing this work since before you stopped bleeding? I have, but I just have to call you on the phrase holding space because that would be exhausting if that's mm. what I was doing. But that's not what I'm doing. I'm accompanying those people who are dying or are bereaved when someone's died. I'm walking that journey with them. And some situations we are co-creating them together. And for this ceremony, I am bringing what I have to offer. And they are bringing their emotional response and a range of other responses to that loss. And together we are creating that ceremony. Mm. Because the concept of holding space, especially around death work, when I'm sitting at the bedside, I'm going out for dinner and a party and going dancing at Nudge. They're dying. They're leaving their children behind. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know how painful or joyful that's going to be. So for me to think I'm holding space for them while they're actually dying, it's very sort of matronizing. Co-creating is not exhausting because it generates its own energy. You're incredibly grounded human being and I just love being in vicinity of you because there's something in that that's just so unusual to feel in another human being so comfortable almost in the question of who am I which is what creates so much confusion I think for the vast majority of the world is the not knowing the answer to that question whereas you seem to be 
I love pretty the not certain knowing. of the who am I. <laughs> do you feel like you don't know who you are or do you no. feel like you're pretty comfortable in the answer to that? I'm totally comfortable in my own skin. I love being a woman. I, I've loved this body. It's given me so much you know, incredible experiences. I've birthed three children. I've had fabulous sex. I've felt pain, physical pain from injury. I've, um, you know, swum. I've climbed. I've been able to do so many wonderful things. And I feel very fortunate about that because I know, as you say, that's not the case for everyone. And also, I get to be a dyke, you know, which is really useful for me. And I think that because I'm not sure who else you're interviewing but I do just want I thought about it before I came I thought you know my bleeding has always been easy and it's lasted for a short amount of time and when I first moved to the north coast I used to just squat and bleed and so I didn't use any um what do you call it pads or anything like that products that's right and um I would just you know I would be on the deck we'd be having afternoon tea like we are now and I just sort of hang off the edge of the veranda, bleed, like squirt that out, and then carry on. And I expected everyone to just cope with that. And they sort of did, because when we all moved up here, we were sort of just, you know, becoming whoever we wanted to be. And it was so exciting. There's also, sorry to interrupt, but there's also a level of boldness other people are not adept at responding to. Yeah, but if you if you there's a way of being which I have to say I've probably excelled at now, especially now I'm older, not so much when I was younger. Then I was just like, take this, you know, fuck that. And um, whereas now I'm I'm much more well because I have a belief that people only see what they want to see. So you can do outrageous things whilst maintaining a very strong presence. And people will not notice that you're pissing in a cup or they'll not notice that you're squatting, bleeding or they're too polite, especially if they're middle class, they're too polite to say anything. And why bother? You know, it's just such a liberating thing. But because I never had to use contraception because I was a dyke, I think that made my bleeding stay much more natural Mm. in a way because I wasn't dealing with any any form of contraception plus I wasn't having sperm in my body there's an alchemy that if you're you're enclosing a male and they are ejaculating into your body then you know anything that you put on your body has an effect great for everyone that loves that but I I feel that that's been an interesting part of my bleeding journey and it's it's even consistency and it's no bother Mm. so I can only recommend becoming a dyke for anyone who's got heavy bleeding in case that might help them and speaking to another guest recently she was saying she'd been with men her whole adult life until the last 12 months and what she's learned about her body in being an exploration of another woman's body mm. for the last 12 months has melted her mind yeah about all of the nuances around her own vagina her own vulva viscosity of fluid mm. smell taste all of these subtleties now across the cycle that she wasn't aware of with her own body but now Mm. that she's in relationship with a woman she's learning so much about herself yeah did you have a similar experience because obviously three children there'd been an experience with 
a partner or several perhaps. Sure. And then this this learning of a woman's form and your own form through yeah. other women. Yeah, so I would say probably I got married when I was quite... I fell in love at 14, I got married at 17, I had two children and I left at 24. That's it in a nutshell. He was a really nice guy. We were fumbling along. We were school kids together and... You know, it was nothing groundbreaking. And I thought, can't believe this is what rules the world. I cannot believe that. Anyway, but I also started to become aware that once I did start to become more sexually active in that marriage, I felt, "Mm, actually, I think I might be a lesbian. You know, a range of things happened. We had a very simple, clean completion of that marriage. And I set off on an adventure to become a dyke and to live a full life which I have and as part of that yes it really has enhanced my level of understanding of my own body especially in a pleasure realm but also just a way of being in the world because you know most of the dykes I met were strong women the way they carried themselves in the world and that uncompromising you know non-femininity now of course you know it's a whole spectrum of what you look like and how you present in the world as a dyke or a lesbian why do you think that is that that is this strength that tends to exist in the dyke community there was almost a fragility in heterosexual women compared to what you would see in the dyke community in this this strength and this groundedness in self yeah well i think they're more, so much more susceptible to marketing to competition to, to seeing their way of being in the world relational to men. So if they've got a partner, you know, if they're engaged, if they're married. I mean, I've spent 25 years as the busiest marriage celebrant in Byron <laughs> as a dyke. And, um, you know, I just see it all the time. And, you know, I see it with my friends who I love dearly. But just, you know, especially as we've got older and some of those are clinging onto their youthfulness but age cannot compete with the beauty of youth. It cannot. You know, you see young people, men and women and anyone in between, where they are so, you could eat them. You know, they are so adorable, <laughs> mm. so shiny, so, so perfect. Just like small children are so perfect because they're just so incredibly cute. Mm. You know, women can't compete with that. They will be much better owning the dignity of their age. But because they're caught in seeing themselves and their value in the world relational to men and that attractiveness, I think that's very difficult for lots of women. Mm, Where there is a much greater liberation from all of those things within the lesbian community. Yeah. Because you're already outside of that stereotypical framework that's been presented in a marketing way. And and for a while there was a bit of, you had to conform in a certain way within that community, but I think now that's just blasted apart because it's so diverse now. You said before that you really always really enjoyed the bleed. That was just part of you. Yeah. What about the other parts of the cycle? That's obviously the most tactile component and it is the part of the cycle that's had the most voice because it was easy, I think, as well for doctors to be able to see that component, to talk about that component, easy for us to sort of see it. But the other three phases, which are so remarkable and have their own energy, they kind of got lost 
Well, they did, and I learned a lot from you at the vaginas <laughs> when you talked about that. Oh, good. Because, you know, for me, I probably appreciated that whole cycle in a state of wonder at the magnificence of a, a woman's body. And I remember saying when I was at school, but all the other girls were complaining, and I was like, yeah, but isn't it amazing that our bodies do that? And, you know, look at it, how incredible it is without understanding it. And I would say that I've probably lived my whole life. I know that other women are affected by that cycle. But I have to say, and I've lived in houses, shared houses of women. I've lived in relationship. I've lived in houses with gay men. And um, I've never really had that effect I just know I'm going to bleed and I, I'm bleeding and then I'm finished. Mm. But the other three weeks of that cycle or whatever, more <laughs> than three weeks because I didn't bleed for very long, really I was, I was not aware of anything else affecting me apart from external mm. factors. Yeah. Um, not, I didn't feel any awareness of my inner workings and it's a little dance because you you don't want to disempower with too much rumination because that's part of also an old narrative that Mm. during these times you can't do this but it's also about permission that if you do feel tired as a woman as you're leading into your bleed because your body is doing so much then absolutely that is reason enough Mm. to rest and it's an empowered choice not making you less Which is why a lot with the work in Living Harmoniously, highlighting the other three Mm. phases, particularly follicular and ovulation, the first two phases after the bleed, because in those phases, the level of energy, clarity, creativity that naturally comes simply with the signs of elevated estrogen and progesterone Mm. is the dialogue that's lost. All of the negative narrative around this has been around the fatigue, the loss of energy levels. What that narrative leaves out is if a woman wanted to rest because her body is already doing enough because she has the whole cycle of creation within her, so fair enough, Mm. the dialogue that's absent is the incredible space of energy and efficiency that follows the bleed. But to be also so minimally affected and just get on with your life is a bloody excellent way to be. (laughs) You know, I was just thinking, I don't think I ever laid on a couch as part of that or put a hot water bottle or mentioned it in any way whatsoever I really didn't but I must have been stuck in one of the phases because I was just (laughs) doing so much and life was so exciting and I achieved and accomplished so much have you always had this joyful attitude I've always been very hungry for life but as I've matured and grown older that sense so I did a year on um intuition I just paid attention to what people call intuition and I really saw that that is a deep knowing and then I like many people I thought oh I'll just check out gratitude and because of course I'm living here I'm a woman I'm having a great time I'm doing what I want I've got lots of great friends I swim every day quite quickly I could see that actually gratitude wasn't the thing for me I just like I went straight into the advanced class of joy and for me joy includes everything and I particularly see it when people come to me and someone has died and they are sobbing or heartbroken and I've I'm holding them but I find myself smiling that smile arises I can't I don't make it happen because joy 
like grace, is spontaneously arising. You can't make it happen. But for me, I just think, oh my God, they're feeling that fully. How lucky are they that their emotional system, their nervous system is feeling the pain of that loss and be able to cry and express it and get it out because we all know that how great we feel after a good cry and how we can manage that overwhelm. And it's our pressure valve for intense situations that we cry it out. Our tears for each emotion are made out of different chemicals that our body wants to get rid creates and wants to get rid of. And so now I'm I'm I spend most of my time in joy and wonder. Do you think that where you're at right now that you will be at peace with your own death? I think so because I've spent a lot of time being aware so generally people say how are you I say I'm great my life's really rich really simple but of course it can all change at any minute but I will also be very happy to die alone because I will be busy dying I won't want to miss that moment mm. and I haven't spent you know 25 years on that cold face to miss that moment so even if that's a car coming that wipes me out I'm generally very good at being present because I want to be present to that moment. So, and with that comes an incredible benefit to everyone that loves me, which is that if, however I die, whenever that is, especially if it's suddenly, they'll go, wow, she, you know, she really lived that life. But yeah, but she was ready for death. She knew it could come at any minute. Now it's come and I'm just assuming just like the rest of my life, it's going to be great. And if it isn't, I'll deal with it then. <laughs> but why dread it? And then in the end, it could be great. Mm. Yeah. bit like menopause. There's, there's got to be this feeling of lightness. I mean, of course, you still, in all your work, you can't see what happens on the other side. You can only see up to a point. But there's certainly, there's certainly for me, a very deep belief that in flying free from the heaviness of this body, which I adore, I have mm. a very similar relationship with the body in which you've expressed and, and I feel a great privilege in having this dynamic endocrine system of owning ovaries. Mm. It's remarkable, that rich palate, that it enables me to see things from so many different angles. But that lightness potential of what will it feel like when you're not subject to gravity inside yeah. a vehicle of matter anymore. Yeah. And, and diving... Or you know, floating on the ocean when you give your body over completely to its weightlessness and you become one with the ocean and with the water is a great practice, I think, for dying. Mm. And also, you know, having sex is also a great practice for dying, I think. And you've mentioned, I've heard you mention this before, this relationship with sex and dying. Well, because you know, as we all know, the French have a term for orgasm which is the little death and so I gave a paper which was um, you know if orgasm is the small death is death the total body orgasm and when you look at this you know the similarities and what it offers you you know when you are having sex with someone else or yourself but it's you know sort of generally more fun with someone else if they're if you're in this consensual compatible experience then what happens is as you're orgasming, so in the West, we say, I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming, which is a sort of pulling in. But in other cultures, they say, I'm going, I'm going, I'm going, which means it's an expansion. 
and when you're merging with the other you lose that where your skin ends and their skin starts and you can become one so you become one with the other but you also become one with everything around you with the air around you because you lose that definition of body orgasm will you know transcends the body and identity of self in that All moment that. completely yeah mm, beautiful so i think every time you're having sex you know it's a really great practice for death and and if you approach death thinking wow it's going to be like that i mean that's why i'm like this because i've held that for probably 30 years that concept just like i held a concept for this for a different 30 well an overlapping 30 years that um when i got to menopause it would not be an issue for me and it wasn't I want to tie those two things together, menopause and sex. This is a great concern I hear from women in my clinic again and again about what's going to happen to them sexually once the bleed stops, once they don't have estrogen and progesterone calling in the primal function of the cycle. Will there be something deeper that supports that? How has that experience been for you? What can you say to those women? <laughs> well, I've got a great story on that. So, um, so as I say, I, I was in my, I was probably about 54. I stopped, I finally sort of stopped bleeding. I was bleeding quite regularly up until then, having great sex. And, um, and then I stopped bleeding for a while. And then I had one big bleed after about a year. And it was sort of like my body wasn't switching off. And I went and followed that through. But up until then, I had no symptoms whatsoever. I'd never had a hot flush. I didn't have debilitating moods. I don't know what, what the other symptoms are, but clearly I didn't have any. Um, and then I made a decision to, when we checked out the bleeding, it seemed that it, it was a thickening of the uh, vaginal walls. And the, on two gynecologists said, they suggested that I have a hysterectomy. So I said, you know, everyone says I should keep my ovaries. And Phil Steele, the local obstetrician who I'd worked with many times when babies had died, said to me, you know, why would you take that chance? At your age, they're not doing anything. And I have actually buried probably 10 women from ovarian cancer. And so I was like, okay, I won't bother then. So I had a hysterectomy. I removed everything, cervix, uterus, ovaries, gone. And... I woke up from that and I thought, oh, I feel like I've got the right body for the next part of my life. It was just like, great. And I was doing a lot of traveling, so I didn't have to think, oh, am I going to have one of those odd bleeds or not? Anyway, but then when I resumed having sex after about maybe a month, six weeks, I started to ejaculate, which I had never done before. I had slept with women who had ejaculated, but it had never been part of my sexual response and um and it was amazing and I rang Phil eventually and I said hey I just have you heard of this and he said no I've never heard of that I said well I think you need to know because you should be saying to women you know and there's also a possibility that this may happen but for anyone who's listening to this who has a body you know that ejaculates a woman's body in particular it's very different to orgasming and it's it is the most incredible physical sensation where you can feel it f f arising from your fingertips from your toes all the way down into that into your cunt and bang 
but it's regenerating over and over again and it's just it's just the most incredible sensation so if I hadn't have had a hysterectomy, I would never, I don't think, have experienced that. And that first time where you experienced this ejaculation, was that wouldn't it even have been an intention of yours, I imagine, because it had never happened before. No, it's never been. So I know some women try to encourage their body to do that, but it was, I don't actually like a lot of mess. So it certainly, because now I have to have towels and everything all over the place, but the payoff <laughs> is worth it. What you're engaging in together is so pleasurable. You're having these beautiful responses from your body that dispels, smashes apart all of these myths around menopausal sex, which is just so wonderful. What about just the desire for sex? Is the desire still just as strong also to connect sexually? The desire, I would say that for most of my adult life, once I discovered good sex, then I engaged in that a lot and it was part of my reason for being alive was to you know enjoy sexual activity with a range of people but when I got to be about 56 and maybe a few years before that I could just feel that desire lessening but it was actually good for me because I had a very highly developed sense of energy so when I walked into the room I would be walking into that room reading that room from my cunt that's just how I present it so some people walk into the room and you can feel their heart you know or their mind but that's how I was I was very you know in that sex and so it's actually a huge relief (laughs) (laughs) just to turn the dial down just a little (laughs) for me and I can only imagine that it's a bit like that for men because it's it's such a driving force for them not all of them, but it's it, it can be an omnipresent. And I wasn't driven by it, but I was totally aware that it was always active and always ready. And so I feel it's appropriate at my age that that has lessened. Mm-hmm. But when I want it, bang, it's back there. I'm just not driven by it all the time. In every space that you are working into, it's these fringe spaces, how we have a joy and we have a really great sexuality around menopause, how we can have this new attitude around death and dying and even not looking at a new attitude, but just exposing the space so we can sit as witnesses in the space rather than it be a hidden space. And you just seem to have this incredible comfort to be able to go into these spaces that most people are hiding they're hiding from but you just are so comfortable almost like just the person who just pulls back the curtain well I also see that that's part of my role in life and I've known that from a very young age that because I learned very early that if I spoke up I would be listened to and one day I would have something to say and I would want people to listen and these were very strong threads through my childhood and adolescence and so I was never afraid to speak up and then the more I learned about life and the more I learned about facade and the more I learned about nice middle class behavior because I'm English working class and how limiting and religion the impact and restriction of religion and how that worked but overridingly the gender debate that women weren't allowed to do things because men wouldn't let them. How that influences everybody. And 
you know, for me, that is my overwhelming sadness for the world. Imagine what a world we would have if is from the very beginning of every civilization or every tribal culture, whatever you want to call it, that men and women came with absolute respect for their each other, for themselves, for humanity, for the differences, and all of that, and anybody in between those gender spectrums. Every decision that was made, every law that was made, was made by a, a diverse group of people where all opinions were considered. You know, the stuff around childbirth, but religion infuriates me so much. It makes me weep at that sense of injustice and the cruelty, and we are seeing it every week here in Australia with violence against women and children and and the death rate for women by people who think they love that person and how fucked up that the cultural conditioning for women is but really how fucked up it is for men who don't get to learn to to become a full emotional human being and then to be able to deal with those overwhelms and take charge of them themselves and take responsibility for that and be able to discuss things instead of deciding to kill someone because someone doesn't want to be with them and hurt them. And it's, you know, it's a terrible state of affairs and a lot of wars are also generated out of the immature emotional response that the patriarchy supports in men. Zenith, it's been so fantastic talking to you. But before I let you go, I just want to address a little rumour that I heard that perhaps you are stepping into the political realm. Is there any truth to this allegation? Well, I was approached by someone who wants to stand for mayor and I said I would consider going on their ticket. And I considered it, and my decision was a clear no. It's not about business. It's not about making money. It's about the betterment of humanity. And so I see that really politics holds a power. And so it does, it's always had an appeal to me. If someone came to me and said, you know, we want you, will you, then I would probably step to that at that level. Mm. But locally, I just don't think I am that person. What's then on the agenda for you next? Is there anything new that's really pulling on your heart to step into or is it continuum of the work that you're already doing? I think it's, you know, I'll be continuing the vaginas for as long as women want to come and talk about that and listen to it as a fundraiser. I'll be continuing my death work. I'm probably going to put some of that online so it's more accessible to people. But really what's, in a way I'm a bit over death because I've learned so much of what death has to teach me. I think the next place for me is about eldership and elderhood because the outcome of elderhood is indisputably death. So I've got death, I've got that. And I think that for people to spend that last part of their life in the most meaningful way they can whether that's on an external level by contributing to community with their time or with their finances or with their skills giving that to youth or whatever but also on the inside that they really start to prepare for their own death and emanate that out so that when they do die the people that love them won't suffer so much Mm. you know and we'll celebrate that fact but also we'll journey together in it and because it's part of a grandparent's role to teach grandchildren what it means to die. 
in preparation for losing their own parents. And that one step removed the wisdom that children see in old people and the incredible you know, beauty and innocence and curiosity that old people see in children. I mean, that's an incredible marriage. And to come together and on death so that you can make you can give the kid the best understanding they can so that when that person dies their life is not destroyed by Mm. that rather it is enhanced by that absolutely amazing zenith i've said this to you before i don't think there's anything more visible than an elder woman in her power for people who want to make contact with you about any of your trainings or anything else that you've got coming up is there a way that you prefer people to make contact with you yeah I'm easy to find but most of my work is through the natural death care center which is a charity and that has a web page I have a web page but I haven't been near it probably five years (laughs) so um, I'm sure it's don't go there you can go there but you know it's not alive it's just there I put it up when I wrote a book so people could find me that long ago I generally do everything out of the death care center now and the vaginas. The vagina conversations is what Zenith is referring to when she says the vaginas. The vagina conversations happens annually around V-Day or on V-Day in Byron Bay and is such a powerful event to attend. Travel from wherever you are, wherever you might be listening to this to come to Byron Bay at that time mm. and experience this phenomenal event of openness and sharing. And, and I know every every woman and every man that I know of that has attended that has, has really fundamentally changed them Mm -hmm. so thank you for the vagina conversations thank you for all of the learning that you've been willing to do in your own life and that you are so now willing and available to share it's absolutely amazing and thank you for coming on today oh thank you thank you for everything you're doing thank you for making it possible for people to grow so incredibly with that knowledge that you have to offer well that means an awful lot coming from you zenith i'm i'm in fandom of you (laughs) on next week's episode we're going to be catching up with an extraordinary woman who's experienced the flip side of death experiencing the greatest level of grief that a mother can ever know with the loss of one of her own children. What impact does grief have on the cycle and what impact does the cycle have on grief? I do hope that you can join me next week and remember that the greatest learning that any of us can do as women is by simply talking to other women. 